You're listening to The Best Possible Taste on West Limerick 102 FM. Good evening and thanks for joining me, Sharon Noonan, for tonight's Best Possible Taste. It's a second helping show tonight, thanks to there being five Tuesdays in March. What I've done is I've had a look at previous shows and selected out a couple of recent and some not so recent interviews for you to enjoy a second time. As Easter is this weekend, I had a look at some of the interviews from last year that focused on that time of year. So you have Easter wines with Ron Forrestal to look forward to. I'll be giving a second airing to Rachel Keeley's review of the Fisherman Bar and Grill in Salt Hill, County Galway. Very timely as the Galway Food Festival is on this weekend. If you missed Sinead Neyland from the Organic College in County Limerick when she was here in January, you have a chance to hear me talking to her about getting prepped for the planting out season. And there's also a reminder of that delicious chicken telegio recipe thanks to Kenmare foodie Karen Coakley. A quick reminder about how to get in touch. You can email me s.noonan at live.ie or send me a tweet at Queen of Org, short for Queen of Organisation. Now we're going to start the show off tonight by replaying an interview with Padraig O'Rourke from April last year when he talked about the history of fasting. Bon appétit. Yummy. Grubs up. Delicious. Mmm. We're about to have a history lesson here on The Best Possible Taste and who better to ask about the background to the Lenten fast and other Easter-related food items but Padraig O'Rourke from Desmond Hall. Welcome, Padraig. Thanks very much, Sharon. Padraig, we're going to go back to Pancake Tuesday, to Shrove Tuesday or Mardi, Mardi Gras. Mardi Gras and um, tell us a bit about the history of that. Well, I suppose um, if you've been off cigarettes or you've been cutting out your coffee or your chocolate over the last 40 years, odd days, you're uh, really looking forward to Easter and giving up your Lenten fasts, you can go back to them. Um, I'd say that the whole idea of Lent um, is that you went, um, you fasted and you ate the bare minimum for 40 days and 40 nights. And this was echoing the time that Jesus spent in prayer in the uh, in the desert. And 40 days for Christians is, um, they get off kind of lightly. If you look at Judaism, which is not unrelated, um, they have a whole set of rules that they have to follow right throughout the uh, the year on you can't eat shellfish can't eat pork uh, can't mix milk and other foods and it all has to be kosher as they call it their set of rules and then look at Muslims in Ramadan and they can't eat during daylight hours for about 40 days and that's really tough Lent by comparison is a lot easier and Lent is the, the 40 days before Easter. Um, we have this idea in Ireland that um, if you were a kid and you were giving up sweets, that you got off on Sundays. After Mass, you could have sweets or ice cream on Sundays. And St. Patrick's Day was considered an exception as well. That's really uh, modern. That's not how it was done in the old days. In the old days, um, Lent, 40 days, 40 nights, uh, there was no dairy products, no meat, and no eggs allowed. And Shrove Tuesday, or Pancake Tuesday, um, the idea with it was you made pancakes to use up the eggs uh, and the dairy products, the milk and the, the butter. And after that, you weren't going to see these things again for 40 days. And even in more recent times, people would have been having their tea black as part of doing penance. Go up to Loch Durgan. You'll know all about that. Um, so that's kind of how it how it starts, and the idea of St Patrick's Day being being different, um, that kind of comes from um, a more modern Irish American thing. Uh, Sigmund Freud, the psychologist, said that the Irish were the one people who defied psychoanalysis. The religious version of that is St Patrick. Um, there was folklore in Ireland that 
when people died, they'd all go to heaven and St. Peter would be at the gates judging them, except St. Patrick. He had his own line, which was completely composed of the Irish because no one else could judge us. And again, anyone else doing Lent anywhere else around the world didn't get Patrick's Day off. That's something that particularly grew up in Ireland and I'd say came originally from Irish America because originally there were three days in Ireland that the pubs had to be closed. Christmas Day. Uh, Good Friday, obviously, which is is still there, and Christmas Day is still there. St. Patrick's Day. We think of it as a big day of celebrating and feasting. Back then, no, it was Lent. There was no alcohol as well, no meat, no no dairy products, so you didn't get your sweets that day either. And at what stage did the licensing laws change that... St. Patrick's Day was a day when the pubs were open. I couldn't give you the exact year, but I think even up up to the uh, the 50s, the 60s, that was in, in place. And uh, I mean, look, in years to come, as Ireland becomes increasingly secular, people could be looking back now and saying, um, uh, saying, uh, you know, when when did Good Friday change? When did Christmas change? Um, I always um, find it very interesting when I hear people describe Ireland as a Christian country and you kind of go, is it still? Go down to an off-license on Holy Thursday, <laughs> you know. Um, so just because the rules are there doesn't mean they're always obeyed by people. Because from an economy point of view, St. Patrick's Day is a huge boost for the economy. It's a huge boost, yeah. Um, but back then, uh, I suppose it, uh, it wasn't such a, a big deal. And I mean, we think of the best St. Patrick's Days are always in uh, in uh, America and Boston and New York. I know that's where I'd want to be for the parade. But the other big thing that's a big boost at this time of year as well, economically, chocolate and Easter eggs. And the idea was that for all of Lent, you didn't have any eggs. And then on Easter um, Sunday, you got to have eggs again. And in the modern day, that kind of tied in with the thing of giving up chocolate if you were a kid. Um, Traditionally, Easter eggs, they just take a normal egg that you wouldn't have been allowed to have for 40 days, so it was quite exotic, and they'd paint it red, and this represented the blood of Christ. So you could have your eggs again, but don't forget about Christ's suffering was the uh, the message there. And in the modern day, it's just been transformed into uh, to chocolate eggs, and people gorge themselves on them. Well, you were saying there before about the whole 40 days and about St. Patrick's Day that we don't observe it and the Sundays. But the 40 days, it's actually longer. It's more than 40 days from Ash Wednesday to Easter Sunday. To Easter Sunday, yeah. So the Sundays weren't included at some stage. I I think the the idea there may have been um, that, again, Sundays you were supposed to be fasting and doing these things anyway. Um, The same way that uh, fish on Fridays still is there for a lot of... uh, It's not a rule of the Catholic Church anymore but a lot of Catholics would still tend to follow that fish on Fridays, no meat. And um, yeah, it's the whole thing. It's it's kind of crazy to track down Easter. It's based on the number of moons. uh, And that's why Easter changes from year to year, that sometimes it can be as early as as March. Sometimes it can be as late as April, May. And I think it's strange to think um, of having fish as a penance whenever now they're recommending that you have fish three times, at least three times a week, because obviously it is very good for you. Well, where that came from, really, if you go back to medieval times and think of the the banqueting hall, Desmond Hall in in town, that um, basically you didn't get to eat any meat on um, saints' feast days. And back then, every second day was a saints' feast day or a holy day. This really only affected the uh, the rich. Poor people only had meat very occasionally. Um, So they used... um, 
the rich would actually keep fish ponds stocked. So, okay, we can't eat, you know, venison or whatever we're having today or pork, but hey, we can bring in some fish as a nice substitute and get our, uh, our protein that way. And there were fish ponds down at the castle. Oh, yeah. If you're looking at, um, at Desmond Hall, out um, where the Arrow River is now, between the, the river and the um, what would have been the walls of the castle, um, there were fish ponds there and they would have been kept very well stocked. Now, talking of the castle, the summer season or the spring season is upon us now. What's happening there for the for the year? Yeah, well, I mean, we're going opening the castle on the 29th of, uh, of May and it'll be open through all of June, July and August as usual. And for Heritage Week, we'll be running a number of lectures and con- concert recitals like we had last year. Uh, closer to that, we have some events on around... Um, uh, in the next week or two on Thursday the 24th of April uh, John O'Callaghan uh, who's a historian from the University of Limerick is going giving a talk on the life of Con Colbert uh, West Limerick man Irish martyr who of course was executed after the Easter 1916 rising in Dublin so that's going to be on Thursday the uh, 24th and then on the 1st of May traditionally May Eve we're going having Dr Billy Madlin again of the University of Limerick um, who's a folklorist and he's going to give us a talk on May Eve and all the traditional customs and rituals and stories about the fairies and folklore that were associated with that and again um, these events are open to the public free of charge come on in and hopefully learn something about Irish history Are they tailored for adult audiences? Generally they'd be I mean given the subject matter they're tailored for adult audiences but we do run things uh, for kids during the year as well Um, we had uh, storytelling and ghost stories in the castle one time and we had uh, uh, making St. Bridget's Cross so we're always trying to think of new ways and bring in new audiences, do different things. And in fact, most of the visitors to the castle during the summer, a lot of them will be parents who've been dragged in by their children. The children have been up at the pound shop and bought plastic swords and they see the castle and want to go in. And the parents quite often have forgotten that it's, it's open or think they have to pay, but the kids are determined and they just get dragged in. And they end up going out an hour later after the tour and the parents are saying, wow, why did I pass this place so often? I never knew it was here. I never knew it was open. I think it is important to highlight that it is free whenever you're open during the summer and even if somebody had friends or family coming to visit at a different time of the year, they just need to get in touch with Absolutely. you. Absolutely. If you have um, cousins coming over from America, if someone's coming back from, from abroad and they're bringing friends uh, with them, all you need to do is go to the entrance of the castle. There's a big sign up stating our opening times and on the bottom is the phone number. Just ring, make an appointment and uh, if I'm available, I'll open up the castle, give a guided tour free of charge. And website then, is there details on the OPW's website? The best thing to do is go to Facebook and search for Desmond Hall. Now you'll find a whole load of people in America called Desmond Hall. Not them, but you'll see the picture of the castle when it comes up. So just search on Facebook for Desmond Hall. So you have your own Facebook page now? indeed. Okay, so there's no Easter egg hunting there this Sunday, but maybe next year, Padraig? We'll consider it. (laughs) Listen, thanks for coming in. No problem. Cheers. Chin chin. Salut. Schleiter. That was Padraig O'Rourke from the Office of Public Works talking about the history of fasting. And still to come tonight, if you missed Sinead Nealand from the Organic College in County Limerick when she was here in January, you have a chance to hear me talking to her about getting prepped for the planting out season. There's a reminder of that delicious chicken telegio recipe. Thanks to Ken Mayor Foodie Karen Coakley and Ron Forrestal has wine recommendations for Easter. Next though, it's time for a review replay with resident restaurant reviewer Rachel Keeley. Bon appétit. Yummy. Grubs up. Delicious. Mmm.
Rachel Keeley is in the studio now with me. Good evening, Rachel. Hi, Sharon. Thanks for having me. And you have been to another place in Salt Hill. Yes, yes. Back up there again. I get called by the draw of the sea or something along those lines, I think. Uh, back to a sea- seafood bar this time, a brand new one, just opened since August. And how many of you were there? There were four and a half of us. Uh, myself, my husband, my sister, her partner and her nine-month-old son, Nicholas. Now, some people are going to be saying this sounds very familiar because you were in Salt Hill <laughs> before at a different place with with the same number and permutation of people. So you have your sister lives up that direction, doesn't she? That's true. A good point. She does. She lives up there. Um, she and her family live up there and they love it. Absolutely love it. They're, I don't think they're going to be leaving anytime soon. The idea of waking up and looking out onto the sea uh, really appeals to them. So, so they're there for a while. And the little fellow loves it as well. He loves being out for sort of his bracing walks. And he took his first steps yesterday. So oh, there'll be a few more of those, I think. So he's nine months and whenever you're out then with a nine month, you really need to be careful where you're going to. You do, you do. I mean, we're very conscious as well at the times of the day that we go. You know, we don't interrupt sort of very evening meals. We go kind of early evening before he gets cranky and before um, the place gets too busy. But no, you can tell very quickly whenever you go into a restaurant if they're going to be baby friendly or not or child friendly indeed. And the fisherman in... uh Salt Hill, was it child friendly? It was from the outset, um, whether that was to do with him or the staff or maybe a combination of both, but he charmed all the waitresses around him and they, they sort of ran to him, got everybody, got him his child seat, um, gave him a few things to play with, oyster shells in this case, and um, also then when he decided he wasn't finished with his own food and he wanted to grab of the adult's food, they provided him with a little bit of pea puree from fish and chips, which is a nice touch. Very mm-hmm. nice indeed. And what was on the menu for the adults? Um, the the menu it's sort of um, it's it's sort of like a fancy fish and chips place. They they go for a lot of um, you know beer battered and twice cooked chips and things like that. Uh, but there's a lot of seafood as well as steak, so they kind of cater for everybody really. Um, for us, we were more interested in the specials board, so we most of us went for seafood, just being the kind of place we were in. Well, I think whenever you're on the coast like that, it's it's madness really it's, to, it's to not have it because you're not going to get it fresher. Exactly, especially in the Galway coast. You know, they had Galway, uh, Galway Bay of oh, mussels, actually it was, and they had Atlantic uh, oysters. So, as you say, fresh, fresh from literally a couple of yards away. And what did you go for yourself then? Um, I actually had myself, would you believe, I started off with the vegetarian dish, which is not like me at all, but it sounded good. Um, it was a warmed local goat's cheese. A very, very simple dish, literally just a little disc of goat's cheese and um, on a little kind of flat piece of toast and with baby leaves and fresh green pesto. Um, so very, very simple. But you know what? It was it was perfect, especially for the cold wintry evening that, that it was. And your companions? They had sort of a mix, um, quite a few oysters around the table. Uh, I think I it was like <laughs> oysters myself. I find it hard to go past them if they were on a menu somewhere like that. And that's it. When you sort of when you're you're in a place that knows how to handle them, you, you can't really not try a couple, you know. So so the first six came out and were quickly devoured by my husband. Um, and then actually the uh, the staff presented us with another six. Um, free of charge which was very nice touch it was obviously they like to see people enjoy a different dish it was served um, with that uh, I think it's called no no No. uh, the mignonette sauce it's the um, shallot and red wine vinegar which is nice it just lifts it and kind of cuts through that saltiness really well yeah I'm not a fan of them cooked don't like them heated up, cooked with anything. I just like them au naturel with lemon and a bit of Tabasco. But that vinaigrette sounds nice. 
It is nice. No, I agree with you about the cooped aspect. You don't see it done an awful lot in Europe. Um, it's a little bit further afield. It's often done, but I think it it kind of gives them a more chewy taste, more akin to cooked mussels, which um, I think they're separate and should be kept separate yeah, personally. I yeah. agree. And for main courses, um, what did you opt for? Um, well, actually, my husband decided on trying to maximise his dish. So he saw a title with trio in it and went for that. It was the O'Malley trio, a special, uh, which entailed basically a heaving wooden platter of fish. There were was place, sea trout and mackerel and a smattering of yet more oysters and a couple of mussels as well, which is nice. Very good. And you yourself? Um, I myself actually I've, I'm a big fan of longestines I, I like sort of really proper meaty prawns um, good size and I like them in garlic butter garlic and chilli butter basically maximum calories really I suppose um, in this instance they were all dressed which I thought was a bit of a pity I would have preferred to sort of work for my meal a little bit um, and the actual sauce was sort of slightly more brothy than, than buttery sauce but still very very nice very appetising Were they in the shell or had they been shelled? Fully shelled yeah, I don't like that. We have to start working with them and start picking the shells off. I like them shelled. I like them. Uh, I like them dished without with the shells on. I beg your pardon. Um, I like to sort of a part of the, I don't know the. Um, the extra bit of effort that goes into it and then when it reveals the flesh beneath it it's it's worth it then you know yeah you're very good <laughs> and your sister and her partner what did they go for I think on a rare evening out um, they decided to go for steaks so they had the uh, surfing turf which was lovely proper big thick steaks very well cooked cooked exactly as they wanted them um, and again on those wooden platters which is a nice rustic touch now I, I always think when you go for fish it's quite a light meal so there's always a bit of room for dessert then well there usually is but actually the portions were so generous here um, and, and I suppose we had a kind of relaxed nobody was hurrying us along so we, we found by the end of it all we were fairly full only the boys managed to um, to sort of find an extra square inch of room in their tummies as they're, as they're miraculously able to do quite regularly um, I couldn't so I just settled back um, with a glass of wine and a nice glass of Pinot Grigio but uh, my husband had actually quite an interesting dessert it was a chocolate peanut butter stack so um, that sounds interesting. It was. It was. It wasn't as rich as you might think. But when you kind of cut a cross section, you just saw layers of, of kind of a gooey, nutty butter, and then chocolate, and then cream. So it just all conspired to create a very kind of satisfying and fresh dessert. You know? Yeah, it sounds nice. So it does. Mm. You mentioned you had a glass of wine. Was anybody else? Um, yes, um, just my fellow lush husband. Um, he had an Argentinian Malbec uh, trapiche. It was quite quite generous again in their portions um, and not bad prices. I think they were around five fifty, which wasn't terrible for a seafront restaurant. And the bill overall then? Again, not bad, I have to say. Um, I mean, just looking at it, even sort of a meal for two, it was €79 Euro for two starters, two main courses, two glasses of wine and a dessert. So again, not bad for sort of the quality of the restaurant involved. And the overall ambiance was to your satisfaction it was in fact a little bit more we would have liked to be able to stay on but we'll have to come back sans enfant for that well I don't know that <laughs> sister of yours never seems to get a drink it must be <laughs> must be your turn to drive one of these nights. one of these days she only has to stroll home but no I think the idea of having a hangover and a baby um, yes. doesn't work for her I've been <laughs> well Rachel thanks so much for coming in to talk to us about that it's the Fisherman Seafood Bar and Grill in Salt Hill if anybody's up in that neck of the woods well we're 
worth making the trip up, I'd say. Absolutely, well worth it, and especially I would imagine on a nice summer's day. They actually have a wine bar downstairs, so you could really make a proper trip out of it. And you're going to be back now in January with a kind of more healthy type approach just to, to kickstart us in the new year. So we look forward to welcoming you then. Until then, have a lovely Christmas. Thank you, and to you, Sharon. You're listening to The Best Possible Taste on West Limerick 102 FM. Welcome back to tonight's programme, which is a second helpings edition of Best Possible Taste in light of the Extra Tuesday this month. You can catch up on it and all the previous shows on the podcast, which you'll find on soundcloud.com forward slash food dash and dash drink dash show. Time now to get a reminder of what preparations we can get underway for the planting season with the January 2015 interview with Sinead Neyland from the Organic College in County Limerick. Cheers. Chin chin. Salut. Schleinte. Happy New Year to you, Sinead. Happy New Year, Sharon. This is your first slot back since Christmas and the New Year. So I'd say a lot of people get a bit gung-ho and want to get out into the garden at this time of the year to do some planting. Yeah, well, I suppose it, the stretch is in the evening and that's the whole idea that we're, you know, back into getting into spring and people get excited. But it's a little bit early to do anything really outside. You do need to hold back, but it's a great month for planning and getting your seeds and that sort of thing and like all the seed catalogues are out now there's a lot of the garden centers will be getting seeds in shortly and it's the time to you know take out the seed catalogue sitting by the fire and start thinking about what you'd like to be eating in the summer really um, and it's kind of planning you know working out what you'd like to grow where you're going to grow it and what you'll have to do and you know kind of taking this month for all of that so that in February then you can kind of start to hopefully get out weather dependent of course. Whenever you say seeds I think a lot of people think that there's a lot of faffing about with seeds in terms of planting them up inside and something and putting them into the hot press and then transferring them outside is that always the case or is there is there lots of things there that you can just put the seed into the ground and a few months later there you are hey pesto there are some things you can direct seed and you know there's crops like carrots that you'd have to direct seed they don't really take transplanting um and then larger seeds like peas and beans can go directly into the ground but you'd want to be into kind of April nearly, you know, with the soil temperatures up, because direct seeding outside, if, if the ground is cold and wet, is just not going to work, you know. So, and I suppose that's why when people get excited, you can't go outside, you can start bringing seeds on inside. So it's given you that little bit of kind of, I'm getting in the garden, even though you're not actually getting outside. Now, the I know a lot of people think that kind of seed zone is a bit difficult and they shy away from it and I suppose it is a lot easier to actually buy transplants, you know, there's less uh, work involved but it's, I suppose people shouldn't be afraid of seeds, they're not that complicated. Um, the big thing with most seeds is temperature. So when you're mentioning the hot press, one of the things is the hot press is handy because it's warm and you do need warmth for them. Um, like in the college now, we'll be putting a lot of seeds on this month. This is the start of our seed sowing, you know, kind of fest, if you like. But um, a lot of the stuff we're putting the seeds on for this month will be planted into the tunnel because it'll be too early yet for, you know, like it will be really April before we'll be planting anything much outside. So everything that we bring 
doing on now is for growing in the tunnel. Um, and we use heated propagators, heated cables. And a lot, of, I mean, I know some people would have small ones at home. You know, you just have a small, like, seed tray size propagator that's heated that you plug in and it just helps to bring on the seeds but the hot press is a good idea because it gives you the heat you put the tray in and as soon as the seed starts to pop out of the soil you bring it back out into the light and that's all it needs um, and I suppose the other thing is that people think that seeds need temperature but they don't they need the temperature to germinate they don't need huge temperature once they have germinated so if you have something in the hot press you could bring it out and keep it on a windowsill or just you know somewhere with light in a warm room it doesn't have to be you know really like a hothouse to bring the seedling on once it has actually germinated you talked about a propagator there just describe what a propagator is it's just a heated a lot of the ones you'd buy you'd get them in garden centers they're small like a seed tray size with the lid and it plugs in so that it heats up the base of it heats up and very often it would have a thermostat that you can kind of regulate it bring it warmer or cooler depending on what seeds you're putting on um, certain seeds you know like tomatoes require quite a high temperature to germinate whereas lettuce or cabbage at that would would require a lot, a lot lower temperature so um, like we use heated cables which are you know just cables that are buried in a big tray of sand and all the trays sit on top of that and again that has a thermostat but you can get you know just quite small handy ones for home but I mean you could make your own you know you could have a, um, a tray and covered with plastic you could have um, you know something like a polystyrene box you know, like a fish box, that, that kind of polystyrene, that kind of generates a little bit of heat and you could use something like that just to bring on the heat and have a cover on it. But if you're starting seeds early, and like January would be quite early, then you do need extra heat because the actual temperatures we have at the moment probably wouldn't germinate most seeds for you. And the tunnel, whenever you're using the tunnel then, what way does it act in terms of temperatures? Well, um, the tunnel is very useful over winter. Like at the moment in the college, we have a lot of salad crops in the tunnel. And while we were away over Christmas, they've really come on, you know, because you get the temperatures in there that you don't get outside. And even a day like today, it was kind of a bit chilly outside, but it was sunny. And of course, the, the tunnel maximizes the heat from the sun and really brings things on. So it's bringing things on. It's There's not... It, things aren't like tearing ahead you're not getting major growth because again the temperatures still are low but I mean today now at around midday when we had quite a bit of sun it was about 15 degrees in the tunnel and that's that's good that brings you know we'll bring on some crops but we wouldn't be direct seeding into the tunnel now it still wouldn't really be warm enough for that um, we would be sowing seeds in the propagator that will be planted out into the tunnel in February March time you know so it's still quite early for a lot of things the tunnel acts the same way that a greenhouse would. Yeah, it does. It gives you that protection. We don't see as many greenhouses around the place now as we used to, do we? No, and I think I, I would say cost is an issue because uh, you know glass houses are quite expensive, whereas a tunnel is a, is a I suppose a cheaper option as such. And also, um, I suppose glass houses can get damaged more easily. The tunnel is, tends to be a little bit more sturdy, you know. So um, I suppose that's really what people go for. And I think as well with the kind of a glass house greenhouse idea, people used it for propagating and keeping pot plants whereas with a tunnel people actually grow crops in the ground you know so there is that slight difference I think in how they're used as well. 
You also mentioned there about the salads, that you have lots of salads growing at the moment. And of course, this time of the year, a lot of people would be thinking about salads. So it's still a bit chilly for them. But if they've had a good Christmas, like most of us have, they might want to be cutting down in the carbs. So what sort of salads do you have in the tunnel at the moment? Well, a, a couple of different lettuce, uh, rocket, mizuna, um, there's winter purslane, there's mustards, all those kind of salad leaf mix, basically the salad leaf mix that we have in the summer still grows away in the tunnel over the winter. You know, there are winter salads. You can get certain types of winter lettuce, but in reality, most of the summer ones will grow away in the winter in the tunnel. And you sell those then in Drum Her? Yeah, we sell the them in salad mix bags, yeah. So you you're, you pick them yourselves and put them into the bags and yeah. mix them up? Yeah. yeah. And is it just at the the market that you sell them then and through the college or do you do any of that on a commercial basis we, to larger um, Well, um, in Newcastle West, Sonus, the health food shop, they stock our, our salads and spinach and a few other things like that they take as well. So they're usually available there every week right through the year. And in terms of tomatoes then? Um, gone until next summer. Okay. Long gone. <laughs> Okay. Well, we had them October, almost into November, we still had tomatoes this year. But um, once you get any kind of frost or cold plants, they just go to kind of mush, really. And then that's the end of them for another year. And I think you need a bit of heat in the sun just to give them the nice flavour. You do, because on some of the summers that weren't very nice, you didn't get the sweetness in the tomatoes that you get when you have really good sunshine. You know, and this year was a great year for tomatoes. But some of the, some of the summers, they, they turn red and whatever but you don't get that kind of sweetness that you get when you have a really good weather and I think it helps as well if you don't store them in the fridge when you bring them home and even if you have them in the windowsill or in a sunny spot that can enhance the flavour and make sure whatever flavour is in them is 100% oh uh, yeah I, I think sometimes the, the, the it's keeping them in the fridge kind of does damage the flavour a bit that they're they're not they don't really need to be refrigerated as such and that keeping them out I suppose in a bowl like your other fruit uh, probably helps to keep them tasting better and cucumbers would be the other you know you'd have your lettuce your ta- tomato your cucumber what way do cucumbers grow when would summer you crop again in Ireland on you know if you see cucumbers in the supermarket now they will be imported Spain or Israel they're not grown in Ireland in the winter again they're a summer crop they need heat they need sun and there's very few places that would have light and heat in a tunnel you know to grow crops I suppose economically it wouldn't pay you to try to produce something because you'd have to have quite a lot of heat and light. And is it something that needs a lot of room to grow? A cucumber? Yeah. Not particularly. It grows up, it actually grows the same way as a tomato. You'd grow it up a cane or, or a string. Um, it gets quite a big, you know, a plant will get big but not huge amount of space. Down, about the same as a tomato, um, but very prolific in what it produces. So one cucumber plant will produce a lot of cucumbers. So again, I suppose that's something when people start getting excited. You know, don't put on 20 seeds for cucumbers for 20 plants because you will never be able to deal with the amount of fruit that you're going to get. You know, one cucumber plant will keep any average cucumber eater in cucumbers for the whole summer. 
That's where growing clubs can be very handy, isn't it? When groups of people get together and, and share their seeds. It is, yeah. And also, sometimes, you know, if there's something that you like to grow a lot of, you know, like, say, salad, that you might sow a few times through the year, you'd buy a packet of seeds for that. That would keep you going. But something like a cucumber, it might be just as well to buy one plant, and that will be enough for you. And even, you know, with tomatoes, if you're not growing a lot, maybe buy one or two plants to, you know, a few different varieties rather than having to buy two or three packets of seeds. And I suppose the other thing with seeds is if you buy a packet of seeds and it has, you know, a hundred seeds in it, you don't have to sow the hundred seeds in one go. And like, especially with tomatoes, they, they, the seed will be fine again next year. If you store it, you'll grow it again next year. And again, possibly even the year after. They don't, they don't, the seeds stay viable for quite a while. But I think sometimes that's what happens. People get excited. They throw all the seeds into the tray. They've got a hundred plants and they don't know what they're going to do with them. So think about it, plan it. And the things that you know that you'll have quite a few of, sow the seeds of. The things that you're only going to want, one or two plants, maybe wait and actually buy the plants. And then you'll have, you know, less trouble for yourself. And definitely to stagger then, uh, you know, whenever you plant things out, that you're not harvesting everything in large quantities at one time. Exactly. Especially items that aren't going to store well. And yeah, that's, that's very important. And you're things like cabbage people will put on you know 40 seeds of cabbage and that means you have 40 plants you know cabbage plants and you're going to end up with 40 heads of cabbage that are already at the same time so again if it's something that you like to eat a lot of do you know sow it as we'd say successionally sow it sow some now and sow another few you know in a few weeks time and a few more so that you keep the, the, the crop coming and you extend the season of the crop as well whereas something like tomatoes you can sow them all together they'll all be planted together and then you'll harvest them right the way through the summer but just you know again even heads of lettuce you know how many will you eat at a time you know over the course of two or three weeks and then so maybe so two you know a, a dozen this week and then in two weeks time another dozen and then that again will keep you going right the way through the season okay well listen that's all great advice Sinead your website is organiccollege.com if people want to go on there and find out about upcoming courses and, and the market and all of that so yeah. in the meantime thanks very much for coming in and we'll talk to you again soon okay thank you Sharon you're listening to the best possible taste on West Limerick 102 FM Welcome back to Second Helpings of the Best Possible Taste on West Limerick 102. So far tonight, we've heard about fasting, a restaurant review in Salt Hill and how to get ready for planting season. And we still have a reminder of wines for Easter to come, thanks to Ron Forrestal. Next, though, it's time to hear that chicken telegio recipe from Kenmare foodie Karen Coakley again. Bon appétit. Yummy. Grubs up. Delicious. Mmm. Karen Coakley of Kenmare Foodies. We're here in Temple Glanton just for a little change out and about around the country. And tonight we're going to talk about a new recipe that you have for us. Tell us what it's called. It's called Chicken Telegio, Sharon. And it's a recipe that I have, I think, since 2001. It's on the go that long in our house. And it's one that my older boys would have loved. And now my younger twins, they love it as well, as does my husband. And is there much involved in it? It's a really very easy dish to do. And basically what you do is you get four chicken fillets. The recipe is for four and it's on my blog, kenwarefoodies.com. So you get your chicken fillets and what you do is you put them on a chopping board and you put cling film underneath them and over them. And then you pound them 
with a rolling pin to about the thickness of a rich tea biscuit. And then you get some parma ham or prosciutto the parma. You can go as high end or as low end as you want to on this. And you lay that out and then you get four small sage leaves and you place the four sage leaves on your parma ham. And then you get a cheese, an Italian cheese, a soft cheese called taleggio. Now, if you can't get taleggio, use a really good camembert or a brie instead. Um, as long as it's like tasty and oozy, that's fine. But taleggio, what I like about it is it's got a lovely nutty flavour and almost like an after finish of beer, like hops to it. It's really good. So you put a slice, a very thin slice of the taleggio cheese in your chicken. So you lay that on your chicken and you roll it up like a sausage. Then you get the rolled chicken, put it on your parma ham and sage, roll that up. In the meantime, have your frying pan heating with some olive oil and a good knob of butter. And then you put in your chicken and you like turn it maybe every three minutes, you know, turn it over to keep it cooking for about 15 or 20 minutes, basting all the time. Then when that is up, when like you can see that all the pink is gone on the chicken and that it's cooked through, take it out of your frying pan with a slotted spoon, add in 300 milliliters of stock. It'll sizzle and it'll bubble, but that's good. And you should have a small bit of cheese will have oozed out of the chicken. And then you deglaze the pan with the stock. So while you're pouring in the stock and while it's bubbling, just keep with a wooden spoon getting all the sediment off the bottom of the pan and then you add in six tablespoons of cream once the stock is reduced down ever so slightly put your chicken back in for about another two minutes three minutes i think actually and baste the chicken with your creamy sauce and then turn it off and let it sit for about two minutes to finish cooking through season with salt and pepper and serve it it's really 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 good and it's a dish that you can serve you know you can use you know a cheap um, parma ham if you want to from any of your supermarkets and you know a brie or if you want to make a special dinner out of it you can go for a really really good um, prosciutto with your taleggio or a high-end cheese and what would you serve that with i love to serve it with asparagus i just put some asparagus with um coated with olive oil salt and pepper stick it on your griddle pan and keep turning it over and some uh, baby roast potatoes in the oven for like a half an hour you know the small baby potatoes um, cover those with olive oil, salt and pepper. Put in some sage if you want to, to complement, you know, to take through from the sage that's in the chicken. And for about a half an hour, and it's just, it's fabulous. You can dress it up or dress it down with a glass of wine. It's lovely. Now, this is a very, what's the word I should use to describe it? This is a very special recipe to you, and you're going to tell us why that is. It is because um, I was a finalist in the Easy Food magazine Home Cook Hero Awards, and it was this recipe that actually got me through to that. The awards I heard about when I was at the station um, a few weeks ago. So That I would entered. be the radio station as opposed the to the garden station. station. Yes, the radio station, <laughs> West Limerick FM. And um, so I heard about it and I entered my recipe. And then about three weeks ago, I got a phone call saying that my recipe had been submitted for um, the finalists. So I had to go to Dublin um, last Saturday and cook for Paul Flynn and Catherine Fulvio in Cook's Academy in Dublin. Now tell me what they were like because Paul Flynn is on a programme or has been on a programme recently The Taste of Success and he comes across as a very hard taskmaster. They're actually they're lovely they really are. Paul Paul is a great guy I think Paul is just he's very approachable and he's very encouraging to people and then Catherine is I didn't get to talk to her, but just my perception of being in the room with her and even that evening we had to go to an awards ceremony where all the finalists were announced. She just has a presence to her. Um, just watching her, she was just beautiful because she is beautiful, but just very friendly and bubbly and at ease and she just seems like a lovely person. 
How did you find the experience on the day cooking in cooking the dish in Cook's Academy? Were you very nervous or did it just come as it naturally just, to you as funny, in your own I kitchen? Thought, I thought I would be very nervous, but um, I wasn't because the setup there, it was so good and it was run so well by Cook's Academy. I think the one thing that I was worried about was, you know, there was two film crews there and Martin King, was he was there. I started cooking at half nine. We had... We had to be there for 20 past eight. We started our prep at quarter to nine and between quarter to nine and half nine we were prepping and TV3 were filming because there's an hour long episode of it being shown on TV. So somebody had said to me, the thing is that if you're cooking and if they come up and if they kind of talk to you, it can be a bit distracting. So I was happy in that Martin King came over to talk to me before I got the chicken in the pan. It was like while I was pounding it out and once that was done, then I was fine. But the setup there was fabulous. The kids, there was kids there there was adults there and like when you see the people and the talent that's all around it's just brilliant so totally loved the experience well speaking of kids you actually were up against Kathy Foley who is from Broadford which is West Limerick I don't know if you know that or not but I believe it was the third person in the category it was somebody she from Balnarob that yes, won it yes she was cooking beside me and she had entered it last year and she had also done the apprenticeship Apprentice, apprentice chef that's run Mark Doe was involved in that with um, Trini IT so she'd been in that as well last year and I mean these girls were amazing they were the girl that won it was a transition year student and her chicken dish had gotten her an A in her junior cert last year and you know they'd had their home ec teachers helping them out with everything and they were just see it's great to see somebody so young with such passion and enthusiasm for what they do and there was a lot of young people there in the night there was another girl from drum caller her Ashleen Brown and she won her category also so congratulations to them and to yourself and Kathy for being shortlisted it was great to see the West Limerick flag being flown even though you're not really from West Limerick but because <laughs> you're you have your regular slot here on the show I think it's it's fair enough to say that now you mentioned the tv program yes so that is going to be on this saturday That's on this saturday um i think it's 1 40 p.m on tv3 it's an hour long and it'll show us in the morning cooking and then the award ceremony that night so you get to see us all glammed up yeah so that that's one definitely worth looking out for to, to have a look at you in all your finery and yes. <laughs> pounding the chicken i'd say they'll have that on so that recipe is, just remind us again what it's called. It's called Chicken Telegio. And it'll be on your It's on my blog, blog already. Okay, yeah. so kenmayerfoodies.com. Well, congratulations, Karen, and thanks a million for thanks, talking Sharon. to me. Cheers. Chin chin. Salut. Schleiter. Finally, one more interview tonight. And sure, with Easter on this weekend, you could be in the market for some nice wine to go with your Sunday dinner. Last year, Ron Forrestal of Forrestal Wine Merchants had some recommendations, so I've looked out that interview to share with you one more time. Bon appétit. Yummy. Grubs up. Delicious. Mmm. So from the Lenten fast to drinking wine, two extremes, but sure, who am I to complain? So welcome to Ron Forrestal of Forrestal Wine Merchants. It seems like ages since you've been here, Ron. Absolutely, isn't it? It's been a while. It's great to be back. Welcome back. And you're here because it's Easter Sunday this weekend and you're going to suggest wines to go with the Easter Sunday lunch and you have a red and a white for us to try. Before we look at that, we were just saying before we came on air about lamb is is a meat that a lot of people would, would be having this Sunday. It is. Well, I think a huge pressure from Borbia has come on on the, on the lamb scene to get it to, to become the tradition for Easter, um, which is a great idea. Lamb is fantastic. It's the perfect time of year because it's spring lamb. Um, 
and with that in mind uh, lamb is is a is, is such a delicate meat it's important to get a, a wine that doesn't overpower it too much and obviously the Irish lamb has a great reputation as well absolutely amazing because of the, the, the grass the, the, the diet is fantastic now traditionally with red meat people would say red wine and with fish they'd say white wine when it comes to lamb either or well, white wine is, is, is going to be difficult to find one that's going to stand up to the lamb. Lamb is still a red meat. It's still it's powerful. People tend to use garlic, rosemary, thyme, a lot of fairly strong flavours with it. So you're going to need something something red generally, I'd imagine, um, and uh, kind of medium body, not too heavy. Kind of stay away from Shiraz or ones that you'd normally pick with a steak, those kind of wines. And what are you recommending? I'm recommending a, a kind of a very modern styled Spanish wine. Um, from Rioja, which people would recognise as the most popular region in Spain, where all the big names that you'd remember come that you see in the shops would come from, like Riscal and Caseras. But this is a much different winery um, called uh, Tobia, uh, and this is Damon. This is their entry-level wine. Um, you can see it's, this is radio, but the packaging is very new, very modern. I was just going to say it's a very unusual shaped it's, bottle. I don't think I've ever seen a bottle that shape before. Yes, their their whole range is is unique um, and very different for this part of the world, which tends to be very old styled labels. A lot of them have the foil, have the little wire around the bottles and that, and they move completely away from that using very bright colours. Um, the label has has, uh, has cat's eyes on it, are very distinctive, and it stands out. But the wine is really nice. And it's young and fresh, not too heavy. Let's give it a try. So, yes, please. So in terms of colour then, describe the colour to us. Well, it's red wine varies in colours. You have some, some, as as mad as it sounds, it has some red colours and you have some purple tinges and you have some more brown colours. This now is a very ruby red colour. It's a very natural colour. If you look at if you hold up to a piece of white paper, you'll see exactly if you're at home and you want to see what colour the wine is. And there's quite um, a dusty smell off that. Yes. Now, it's aged in, in a barrel for six months. So what year is that wine? 2010. Okay. Yeah, because that would be my initial. It is quite dusty. Now, I have got a bit of a head cold, so that could affect that. It's put into a real oak barrel, um, which is American oak, for six months uh, before it's bottled. It's very tangy. Yes. And you're saying you need something like that because of the All the flavours that go around the meat that you have. But it, it's not heavy at all. It's not too heavy. So it's not a... And it's not overly oaked. It has that oak flavour from it, but not... Some of the riocas you buy, the reservas, would be in a barrel for 36 months. They have three full years sitting in a barrel, which makes them very overpowering. But if you like that, it's great. And how much is this a bottle? Costing around 13 euros a bottle. Okay. And... You'd just be having a couple of glasses of that with the dinner. Yes. You wouldn't be having maybe a couple of glasses before the dinner, a couple of glasses with the dinner and a couple of glasses after the dinner. Well, the, the, the Easter Sunday has become a big day. Um, it's a big meal now, um, particularly for restaurants. It's a huge day in restaurants. Um, but this this is a lamb dish. Obviously, I brought a white as well. Um, but I've brought, because you're going to have a starter generally, which will, the time of year lends it to be something like smoked salmon or something fresh and light, especially when you're going to have lamb. Um, so for for a starter, I brought a Vino Verde, a Portuguese wine. Uh, Vino Verde is a very popular Portuguese product, hugely popular in Portugal. Um, 
every wine list will have a number of them that you'd see on holidays but it's a very unusual product and I really like it because it's a real weather kind of wine good weather kind of wine um, it's slightly effervescent it has a slight bubble in it uh, have you tasted it? You I like it? love it. I know I'm, I'm sitting here smiling. The listeners don't realize this. I'm sitting here smiling away. Jerome, and you're saying about it being a summer wine. I'm just busting to try it because it would really remind me of the summer. It is. Now, if you go to a wine list, you go, anyone's been on holidays in Portugal in the Algarve, you'll see six or eight Vina Verdes on the wine list. It's a style of wine, probably the most popular style of wine in Portugal. Yes. But uh, some of them don't travel particularly well um, because they tend to be quite cheap. Um, now this is from Aleveda Aleveda is one of the oldest houses in Portugal they don't make anything cheap um, this is costing around 12 or 13 euros a bottle and this is their entry level they have two other levels above that again but Vina Verde just means green wine which means fresh, really fresh drinking wine and I always feel drinking this on holiday that it, it seems to be watered down I don't mean that in a bad way but you just seem to be able to drink more of it and not feel the effects of it the way you would at home. Is it lower in alcohol? No, no, this is, um, I'll just check exactly, see what it is now, but it's 11.5%, which is kind of standard. But that is, well, you see, like, what's the red there? Is the red 13, well, the red, 13, 13 yeah. you see? So 115 is quite low. It in, is, it's at I the lower think. end, I suppose, yeah, really. A lot of the French product would be 115 whereas if you go to South Africa or go to Chile, it's probably up around 125 or 13%, because the better weather is better. So yeah, and I think that's a nice wine to drink without food. Oh, it's fantastic. And it works really well as a long drink. And, and this, is a, this is a slightly unusual. But if you, if you take a, 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 a glass, some really good ice, a tall glass, like you put a gin and tonic in, put in some really cold ice, not watery ice now, really cold from your freezer, uh, get cold uh, uh, soda water or sparkling water, fill half the glass up with that, fill the other half up with this Vino Verde and then put in a slice of cucumber as a long drink. It's fantastic. That would be a white wine spritzer. Yes, but uh, but as a really nice, cool drink. Mm. And a great way to make the wine last longer. Absolutely. Great for later on in the summer when the weather is good and you don't want to be, you know, if you want to have a drink of a glass of wine or something in the evening or somebody comes in early that you don't feel like um, <laughs> a couple of glasses might be too much it means it's a little less yeah, we should direct people to the drinkaware.ie website at this point just to you know to be aware of units of alcohol and everything like that because we're not promoting overindulgence here but it is nice to have the couple of glasses and the other thing that some people might add to that would be lemonade is that a splitzer then as opposed to a spritzer it, it, it's it's an awful thing to do, uh, really. It's um, it, it's I agree. I agree, but I think you're saying there about making the drink last longer. Uh, absolutely, yeah. Use soda water by all means. Soda water or, or sparkling water, any of those is perfect. At least you're still tasting the wine. Uh, just try and avoid adding if adding like uh, lemon and lime or, or white lemonade or those kind of products because they just take over completely. So you've the white wine then to go with the starter if you're having smoked salmon or something like that, and then you've that the lovely red wine the Rioja for the the lamb dessert wines are something that you would do as well tell us a bit about dessert wines well dessert wines are uh 
they, they tend to be they're, they're bracketed in the white wine but they're, they're not really um, they're much more syrupy sugar filled uh, drink than, than white wine would be so what basically happens is that they, they leave the grapes out uh, they normally pick the grapes at the end of September when they're picking a crop for to make dessert wine they leave them out probably two or three weeks longer the juice the, the grapes um, virtually rot on the uh, vine but it ends up with a really sweet sugar filled drop of juice per grape is what they end up with so the the yield is very low takes a lot of grapes to make it they only use very good grapes to do it but you end up with a with a really sweet almost orange in color wine um which are called sticky wines there's a number of them that you'd recognize from france like muscat de bon de venise or sauternes the new world do it really well chile and um and australia and south africa because the weather is better um, there's more sugar in the grapes. Um, they don't need to leave them out as long as they do in France. And um, it, it works out a little bit cheaper. French dessert wines tend to be very expensive, whereas the New World ones tend to be much more affordable. But it's a beautiful drink. What you end up is that it's, you don't drink a glass of it. You drink generally about a third of a normal glass of wine. That would be a serving of dessert wine. Works really well with um, anything from fresh fruit to um, lemon tart to pavlovas, anything like that. It doesn't work that particularly well with chocolate. Chocolate is a different kind of product because um, chocolate is so overpowering. Um, and I know we discussed earlier, it, it's, red wine works with chocolate to a point. Um, it's very hard to drink a half a glass of red wine with a chocolate tart. That doesn't work particularly well. But they do work in small quantities. They work well with each other. I was thinking more about getting tucked into the Easter eggs this Sunday and what sort of red wine I can have along with that. Because I think red wine and dark chocolate goes quite well together. It's, um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's difficult to find one that works pretty well with it. It depends how much you like red wine uh, and, and, and chocolate. And chocolate. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think, I think chocolate is very strong. It, it's, uh, but then they're doing really unusual things with chocolate now. Everything from, you know, your chili, which has been around for years, to adding absolutely mad things to chocolate uh, to move them on but it's uh, again it's what you like yourself um, but yeah a red wine at the end is, is difficult of course if you're having cheese it's completely different red wine is perfectly suited to having cheese if that's true yeah I've been moving on to the port then I'd say absolutely port is the way to go <laughs> yeah <laughs> well you have a new brochure out with all your wines in it if people want to get hold of one of these how do they get in touch just with give you? me a call and we'll send it straight out to you we have a big list of wines um, we've uh, added another 40 products to it since we started out last year so we're at about 160 or 70 wines at the moment and just remind the listeners now of the red wine that you're recommending to go with the lamb this weekend that they can order a case of that off you if they're entertaining lots of people absolutely now we have a huge amount of choice obviously but the one I, I've chose for the, to taste today is a product called Damon it's from uh, Tobia is the producer it's from Rioja it's a very new modern styled Rioja Spanish wine great well cheers Ron thanks a million for thanks coming in much. happy Easter same to you cheers chin chin salut Schleinte. That's us out of time this evening. Thanks so much for your company on tonight's second helpings of Best Possible Taste, which featured repeat interviews with Ron Forrestal, Rachel Keeley, Karen Coakley, Sinead Neeland and Podrick O'Rourke. Remember the podcast at soundcloud.com forward slash food dash and dash drink dash show if you want to catch up on tonight's show or hear a previous one again. And a word of thanks also to my new production assistant Laura Forrestal. It's great to have a helping pair of hands on board. I'll be 
back next week with an all-new programme that includes a new review by restaurant critic Rachel Keeley. Until then, have a happy Easter, enjoy the eggs and bon appétit. Do you want to get in touch with the best possible taste? Do you want to come on, share a recipe, review a cookery book, or just have a general chat about what you like to eat and drink? All you have to do is get in touch with me, Sharon Noonan, by sending an email to s.noonan at live.ie or send me a tweet at Queen of Org. Bon appétit!